Hello, family, and welcome. We're Bob and Penny Lord. We want to share with you today a very special super saint, doctor of the church and founder of the Redemptorist Order, St. Alphonsus Liguori. Unrest was spreading throughout Europe and the American colonies, and it would not leave Italy free from its tentacles. We were in the age of enlightenment, where the philosophy was an egocentric, prideful belief in the power of human reason, rather than the universal Catholic belief in and dependence on God. Great enemies of the Roman Catholic Church and all forms of religion, these, those all egotists fostering this theory, placed the focus on knowledge derived through the study of nature rather than the one who created nature. They rejected all forms of Christianity, consequently the existence of Jesus Christ. They promoted the rationale that human aspiration should be centered on the now, life on earth, rather than centering our lives on eternal life in the kingdom to come. They taught that God created the world and its natural laws, but takes no further part in its functioning. The primary focus of this new cult was to mold their consciences into their new way of life, centering on man rather than God. But God made a promise he would not leave us orphans. The church was under attack. Send a future defender of the faith. A baby was born on Tuesday, September the 27th, 1696, whose voice would not be stilled. Alphonsus took his leave from heaven and came into the world on the family's country estate. Although of the nobility, his family, like so many other of his class, had seen hard times. Alphonsus never forgot his beginnings, and he would spend most of his 91 years on earth serving the poor and downtrodden. Baby Alphonsus would grow into a fine instrument of the Lord and live on in the many books he would write, 111 of them in all, including two volumes on moral theology which would have him declared a doctor of the church, and also many books on Mother Mary, his love. His father had him trained to become a lawyer. By the time he was 16 years old, he was so proficient in his studies, he received a degree of Doctor of Laws, despite the fact that the required age to receive such a degree was no younger than 20 years of age. He studied for the bar and by the age of 19 was able to practice law in the courts again, far ahead of all who had preceded him. However, the world and its snares were weaving a spider's web threatening to entrap the young man in it. There was an ongoing battle for Alphonse's future. Temptations were always lying in wait for the brilliant young lawyer. But Alphonsus confessed and testified he never succumbed to serious sin. He did grow increasingly fascinated by daily challenges. The flattery of those who saw his clever prowess in the courts not only turned his head with their open adulation, but to compound the problem, Alphonsus found himself setting aside prayer and spiritual reading for the glitter of the world and its relentless temptations. It would appear that Alphonsus' future was sealed until the day that God stepped in. Alphonsus loses, God wins. It has been said that in the eight years he practiced law, he possessed a record of never having lost a case. That is, until the one case which would change his life and the direction it had been taken. We now find our young lawyer in the year 1723 and about to face his first defeat. There was a trial being waged in the courts of law. 
Alphonsus began with his usual brilliant, cleverly prepared remarks to the court. Satisfied with the obvious results which would be assuredly forthcoming, the young Alphonsus confidently sat down after he had finished speaking. But his contentment was to be short-lived. Just as he was about to call his first witness, the opposing counsel coldly confronted him, insisting his arguments were ill-placed as Alphonsus had missed a segment of the document which completely negated his allegations and, constantly, and consequently jeopardized the success of his case. As this was so out of the ordinary, Alphonsus insisted on reading the document, incredulously examining and re-examining the brief, and then, not satisfied, going over it again meticulously. There was nothing left but to admit that he, in fact, missed that section and had consequently lost the case. He was desolate. All in the courtroom tried to console him, even the judge, but Alphonsus would have none of it. No amount of reassurances could dissuade him. He bolted out of the courtroom, crying out that he was finished with law and all its trappings. He went to his room and refused to eat anything for three days. He spent days upon days praying, seeking God's will in his life. There is no record of how long he prayed. We only know that on August the 28th of the same year, 1723, Alphonsus went to the hospital for the incurables to visit the sick and dying. As he was making his rounds, suddenly he left. He, left, he felt the room he was in begin to shake, whereupon he heard a voice call out to him, Leave the world and give thyself to me. That he might not think that this was his imagination, the voice repeated the command. His blood racing, his heart pounding, Alphonsus rushed out of the hospital and went over to the Church of the Redemption of Captives, or as it is known also, Our Lady of the Ransom. He knelt before the image of Our Lady and laid his sword at her feet, swearing his lifetime allegiance. He then made a solemn resolution to enter the religious life, starting as a novice in the Fathers of the Oratory. Alphonsus began his walk towards sainthood. His walk was not to be an easy one. His father was not too happy with his two unsuccessful attempts at trying to marry Alphonsus to a suitable wife of a prestigious family. Nor was he pleased with his son's desire to leave his profession as a lawyer. Actually, he was furious with Alphonsus' decision to leave the world and enter the religious life, especially as an oratorian. After enduring two months of trials, his father gave his son, consent to his son, pursuing the religious life as a priest as long as it was not an oratorian. And Alphonsus agreed. The other hook was that Alphonsus agreed to remain at home, and Alphonsus agreed. Without fidelity to an order already established, this freed Alphonsus to found an order of his own one day. On October the 23rd in the year 1723, Alphonsus was vested in the clothes of a cleric, and in September of the following year, he received the tonsure, soon after gaining admittance to a missionary secular priest organization where priests were not required to live a communal life in community. He received minor orders in December 1724, joined the subdiaconate in September of the following year, and on April the 6th, 1726, he was enrolled in the diaconate as a deacon. On December the 21st of that same year, Alphonsus was ordained a priest. He was now 30 years old. 
For the next two years, he was involved in missionary work throughout the Kingdom of Naples. As we aforementioned, the church was under attack and suffering, what with the liberal, humanistic effects of Renaissance, completely out of control, and in contrast, the unrelenting, uncompromising rigidity toward the sacrament of penance, a product of Jansenism, threatening to destroy her from within. St. Alphonsus came against both these extremes. He was able to win the hearts of all who listened with his simplicity, speaking to the souls of men as well as to their minds at their level, never talking down to them or over their heads. The simplest baker was able to absorb the word of God alongside those of the intelligentsia. A typical comment was, it is a pleasure to listen to your sermons. You forget yourself and preach Jesus. He passed on this wisdom to all he instructed for missionary work. He said, I have never preached a sermon that the poorest old woman in the congregation cannot understand. He treated souls seeking forgiveness in the confessional as precious souls desiring to be saved instead of as criminals deserving punishment. On the 9th of November in the year 1732, the Congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer was born in a little house provided by Mother Celeste and the nuns of Scala, who became the Redemptoristines. Their beginnings were small, with seven postulants under St. Alphonsus and our Bishop Falcoa as informal superior general. Then, with the baby institute numbering only a few, what should creep in? Jealousy and pride, dissension and discord began primarily centering on who was in supreme authority. A schism was hatched in both the men's house and that of the nuns. After five months, a very sad, wounded Alphonsus remained with only one lay brother. With even his closest having left him, St. Alphonsus stood firm about keeping the neophyte community going and the Lord blessed his steadfast stance. Soon after, others flocked to Scala, so many they had to move into larger quarters. Before you knew it, in 1732, the missionaries were bearing fruit-giving retreats and missions in the Diocese of Amalfi. Although in 1738, the missionaries left Scala, by the year 1746, they would open four houses in Nocepagani, Chiarani, our saint is so well-renowned as a moral theologian and prolific writer and founder of the Redemptorist, one of his most meaningful contributions to Mother Church is often glossed over, his outstanding missionary work. For 26 years, he traveled up and down the kingdom of Naples, preaching the kingdom of God, especially in the smallest villages and far-reaching rural areas. Families' wounds were healed and divisions mended. Enemies reconciled. Neighbor helped neighbor. St. Alphonsus would make it a practice to return months after having given a mission in a certain area to check up on the faithful there, often giving a renewal of a mission. The persecution persisted. Spain reasserted its authority over the Kingdom of Naples, and with that, Charles III appointed the lifelong enemy of St. Alphonsus, the Marquis Tenucci, as Prime Minister of the Kingdom of Naples. The persecution which ensued lasted the 42 years Tenucci was regent. 
Alphonsus was assigned to go out into the hinterlands and preach, and so he did for two years until his friend Bishop Falcoa died, at which, at which time the position of superior general was vacated. A general chapter was held in which St. Alphonsus was elected superior general. Vows were taken by all, followed by rules and constitutions which were formulated. This all affirmed that now at last they were a religious institute which was to give birth to more foundations. The first edition of his famous Moral Theology was published in 1748 and the second edition in 1755. In these books, he vigorously fought the rigidity of Jansenism. He fought most especially his teachings on Holy Communion, that it can be only very rarely received worthily. Wherever our Lord is under attack, look carefully, and you'll see an attack on Mother Mary and vice versa. Not content to try and undermine the life-giving reception of the Holy Eucharist, Jansenism promulgated the heresy that devotion to Our Lady, our most precious mother, is nothing short of a futile, hopeless superstition. St. Alphonsus attacked these serious false teachings unflinchingly with his publication on the glories of Mary in 1750. He continued to guide and promote his new congregation despite attacks from within and without, tirelessly striving to get it approved by the king. His hours were spent ministering to the many souls who came hungering for individual spiritual guidance. He tirelessly continued continued to conduct missions all over Naples and Sicily. And with all that, he still found time to write hymns, compose liturgical music, and paint the most beautiful paintings of our dearest Lord and Savior and our most precious Mother Mary. In 1752, with much of his strength ebbing out of his now ailing body, St. Alphonsus was forced to curb his outreach to the children of God and instead spend every working hour writing with his eyes on the people of God who would be hungering, no, starving for the word of God. Much maligned and mistreated, he was still regarded highly as a God-given gift to Mother Church. A canon once said of him, if I were the Pope, I would canonize him without process. The confessional was his most treasured pulpit. Having suffered from scrupulosity himself, he was most gentle and understanding to those who came to him suffering from the same affliction. When our saint was 66 years old, Pope Clement XIII made him bishop of Sant'Agata de Gotti. In spite of St. Alphonsus' objections, when the emissary from the Pope arrived, he greeted our saint with most illustrious Lord and proceeded to hand him the proclamation by the Pope. St. Alphonsus carefully read it through and admonished the emissary to refrain from addressing him with such a title, insisting it would be to the death of him. But His Holiness Pope Clement XIII would hear nothing of his refusal and St. Alphonsus was ordained Bishop of St. Agatha de Gotti in the Church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. Now, once made Bishop, St. Alphonsus set up a modest dwelling for himself. The first thing he did was to gently but firmly refuse the room with the lovely view that other bishops had formerly occupied and moved into one without any window, the better to do penance. He then insisted they discard the mattress of wool they had prepared for him and replace it with one of straw, explaining, I did not come here for comfort, but for penitence. 
His secretary testified that he found St. Alphonsus sleeping on the floor many times rather than in bed. This saint who had been born of royalty would mend his habit rather than spend money to purchase a new one. He soon discovered the cathedral had never been consecrated. Post haste, he called upon the Archbishop of Amalfi, who had been formerly Bishop of the province, and together they consecrated the cathedral. This small diocese had 400 secular priests, of whom many did no pastoral work in a parish, but instead led lazy, uninvolved lives on their all to easily gain salary, and worse, some stooped to leading most decadent lifestyles. And this is what St. Alphonsus found, a diocese which had suffered 30 years of neglect and was showing the decaying fruits of that neglect. Without delay, he organized a contingency of priests to act as missionaries to all the parishes in the diocese. His only advice was for missionaries to speak simply when delivering talks and homilies in the pulpit and to be charitable in the confessional, exercising the loving forgiveness of their Savior before them. One day, after he witnessed a priest ignoring his advice from the pulpit, he called the missionary to his office and chastised him. Your sermon kept me awake all night. If you wanted to preach only yourself rather than Jesus Christ, why come all the way from Naples to Areola to do it? As the only way that priest reforms would come about would be to go after those who would one day represent Jesus on the altar, our new Bishop Alphonsus began with the seminaries. One of St. Alphonsus' great loves was the Mass and the Eucharist. One of the serious infringements of church law he went about immediately correcting was some priests rushing through Mass as if a runaway train was pursuing them, barely taking 15 minutes to celebrate the most important mission of their priesthood, the sacrifice of the Mass. He suspended them until they promised to correct any abuses suffered on the altar. He wrote a treatise which is as much alive today as the day he wrote it. The priests at the altar, said St. Cyprian, represents the person of Jesus Christ. But whom do so many priests today represent? They represent only mountebanks, earning their livelihood by their antics. Most lamentable of all is to see religious and some of even the Reformed orders say Mass with such haste and with such mutilations of the right as was scandalized even the heathen. Truly, the sight of the masses celebrated in this way is enough to make one lose his faith. Famine struck his diocese, followed by plague, and subs subsequently thousands of sufferers and victims. St. Alphonsus met it head-on, selling all he owned to feed the starving multitudes, down to his carriage and mules, and even his uncle's Episcopal ring. Our saints stopped at nothing to help the starving masses to the point of going into deep debt. St. Alphonsus personally distributed food to the people. In June of 1767, at the age of 71, St. Alphonsus was struck down by rheumatic fever, and no one gave him a chance of recovering. Not only was he given extreme unction, he was prepared for his funeral. But God was not finished with St. Alphonsus. After 12 months of impending death, our saint's life was spared. But his illness left him crippled, paralyzed, with his upper body permanently, incurably bent over, causing his neck to press his chin against his chest. The persistent agony of the rheumatism was further aggravated by the additional pain 
emanating from the sores on his chest as a result of his chin immovably piercing his chest. His beard could not be cut as it grew wedged between his chin and his chest, and this added to the almost unbearable suffering of our saint. Most beloved priest, it appeared he would not be able to celebrate Mass as he could not lift his head to drink from the chalice. The fathers fashioned a straw made of gold, which enabled him to consume the cup in spite of his disability. To facilitate his celebrating the Holy Mass, a chair was provided. The pictures you see of this saint bent over are a result of the excruciating and painful deformity he suffered the last 20 years of his life. St. Alphonsus appealed to Pope Clement XIII and Clement XIV to be allowed to resign as bishop of his diocese, but both refused to sanction his request. But one year after Clement XIV died, the new pope, Pius VI, taking into consideration Alphonsus' <clears throat> physical limitations, finally granted his request. At last, our saint, tired, old, and suffering, would be able to spend his last days in his redemptorist cell in Nocera Pagani. But that was not to come about. Two years passed when the redemptorists were again under attack. Alphonsus knew this was the only way to attempt once again to get official sanction from the king. It proved to be disastrous. It was proposed by Bishop Testa that a St. Alphonsus would relieve himself and the community of redemptress of all rights to hold property in common. He would present the rule to the king as it was without any changes. But Bishop Testa reneged on his agreement and altered the rule in many major areas, especially by including the abolishment of religious vows. The bishop was able to enlist a counselor of the Redemptorist to present his adulterated rule, which was written in very small letters and blurred by many erasures. Now St. Alphonsus, by this time aged, crippled, and bent over by rheumatism, confined to a wheelchair, deaf, and to top it off, could barely see. As he believed he had no cause to be suspicious, he read the first few familiar lines and signed the paper. It was not, he was not only betrayed by his counselor and the bishop, they even enlisted his vicar general who went along with them. Hmm. The rule was signed by the king and presented to the redemptionists and to St. Alphonsus. All the Redemptorists turned on their founder. You have founded the congregation, and now you have destroyed it. Recognizing what had come to pass, St. Alphonsus turned to his vicar. I never thought I could be deceived by you, Don Andrew. And then distraught, blaming his infirmity and carelessness, he cried. He accepted all the blame, saying it was his responsibility to have read it over himself, but then helplessly admitted he could barely read it. The die was cast. If he refused the rule, the king would suppress the redemptorist. If he did not refuse, the, the pope who had approved the original rule would suppress the congregation. St. Alphonsus did not know where to turn. It appeared everyone was against him. He thought he would reach out to the pope, but the redemptress of the papal states had already contacted his holiness and placed themselves and the congregation under his umbrella. The Pope recognized these redemptress as the only true redemptress and placed Father Francis de Paolo as their superior general. 
St. Alphonsus was barred from the order he had founded. Words can never fully touch upon the wounds suffered by St. Alphonsus with his last blow. All he had dreamed, the order of the Redemptorists, all gone. He spent his last years alienated from the Holy See and from Mother Church, and our saint accepted it as the will of the Lord. As if that was not enough, for the next year he would spend all his waking hours enduring a dark night of the soul, tortured by attacks of doubt concerning all the treasured tenets of the church which he had so loved and defended. In addition, he was being haunted by memories of all those who had hurt him. His scrupulosity became magnified with our saint accusing himself of every sin against God. Not satisfied with pu putting those excruciating, debilitating thoughts in his mind, the devil appeared to St. Alphonsus relentlessly, filling him with horrible visions of himself and his fallen angels engaged in diabolical acts. This went on for 18 months with little respite from the attacks. But as God never leaves us forsaken, St. Alphonsus was granted ecstasies, prophecies, and miracles to counterbalance the agony of the internal manifestations he was suffering. At various times while preaching, a light was known to shoot forth from a painting of his most beloved Mother Mary, causing him to fall wrapped in ecstasy before those attending the missions. In addition, God, not to be outdone in generosity, bestowed upon his sorrowing servant other gifts. He was witnessed by many levitating when at different times he shared about God and his love for us. He was considered a healer, his prayers bringing about many cures of the soul as well as the body. He was known to read men's hearts, except most crucially at the end, when the infamous acts of his closest came about. He even prophesied that which he would not live to see, the unification of all the Redemptorists. Dear most precious saint, at last peace, on July the 31st, 1787, just two months before his 91st birthday, our saint, broken and battered, went home to his Savior and to the lady he so loved while on earth. In 1796, Pope Pius VI opened the cause for St. Alphonsus' beatification, resulting in his beatification in 1816 and his canonization in 1839. In 1871, he who was so maligned, he who died in virtual disgrace, alone and abandoned, was declared a doctor of the church. Like St. Paul and many of our saints, St. Alphonsus would not live to see his prophecy come to pass. He had prophesied that the separated Redemptorist houses would reunite and prosper, spreading the philosophy of the Redemptorists to the four corners of the world. In 1793, the Neapolitan government accepted the original rule as instituted by St. Alphonsus. The Redemptorists were all united under one rule, with one mind, heart, and vision, spreading Alphonsus' rule to not only Europe, but all over the world. Rest in peace, gallant and fearless soldier. Your suffering was not in vain. Your blood shed out of love for Mother Church and your community is what nourishes the great work the Redemptorists have carried on till today. We love you. We love you. God bless God you. God bless you. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here's how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app,
and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.